we're in, obviously, Romans 8, and we're going from 31 to 34. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Rewind in your Bibles just a tad to Job chapter 1. Job 1 is a fascinating picture of, of the throne room, this peek into the heavenly realms, where there's a conversation happening between Yahweh, the Most High God, and the accuser. That's what he's called in that text. He's translated into Satan, the devil. The word is adversary. The word is accuser. He comes before the throne, and Yahweh says, Where have you been? And the accuser says, I've been hanging around different parts of the earth, you know, looking around. And, you know, God says, Have you considered my servant Job? And the dialogue continues, and we're thinking, Wait a minute, I didn't think that God and the devil could be in the same room because there's not, you know, room in this town for the two of us. So why is this happening? Is this just somebody's imagination or what? And I, no, I don't think it's just symbolic or an allegory or some kind of imaginary story happening. There was a, a conversation happening between heavenly beings and the Most High God. And we understand that God allowed the accuser, a lot of wiggle room to, to really bring tragedy and harm and pain to Job's life, but God put limits on him. You know, take his health, but don't kill him. Round two, you know, take all of his stuff, and, you know, the accuser left his wife, which he probably, Job probably would have been better off if, you know, that she would have been gone too, because she wasn't any help to him. But in the end, Job suffered tremendous loss and grief, but in the end, he was restored. He was acquitted of his accuser. This is the picture. It was almost like a court scene in Job 1, and then at the end of the book. In Revelation chapter 12, we see another picture of this devil, this one that's in this picture, is called a dragon. And I want to read Revelation 12 from verse 7. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. So there's this cosmic battle going on between the dragon and his minions, and Michael the angel, and the, the host of heaven. And the dragon was thrown out. That great dragon was hurled down, verse 9. The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, the adversary, or the accuser, 
who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels, or his messengers, with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Now listen, for the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night. Do you see Job 1 here? The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God, 24-7, has been hurled down. And verse 11 says, they overcame him. They who? Well, the ones that that were covered by the blood of the Lamb and gave word of their testimony. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. He's talking about these early Christians overcame the accuser by the blood of Christ and the word of their testimony. The accuser lost his place among the heavenly realms and was hurled to the earth. Bad news for us, because later on in chapter 12, it says that he waged war against the offspring of the woman. And we talked about that last Christmas, if you remember. He went to wage war against the rest of her offspring and those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. That's the bad news, that the accuser was hurled to the earth. The good news is these early Christians overcame him by the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb, and their testimony about him. The accuser is still busy, but it doesn't matter. Because Paul, here in Romans 8, is confident. He's audaciously courageous in his claims in the face of this age-old accuser. Early on in the, Earlier in the chapter, we remember we have this privilege as people who bear the name of Christ to, to be able to call out parakletos, parakletos. We have the paraclete, we have the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside and speaks on our behalf. With When we don't know what to pray, we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for us. We're, we're groaning inside, we don't know what to say. He prays for us. And we have this representation before God. We have this defense before the accuser. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. He, and, and Paul, in this, in this chapter, cannot emphasize this enough. We have nothing to fear from this accuser, from the adversary. When my son, Matthew, was in kindergarten... This was in Indiana when we lived in Indiana. Um, he um, five years old, and it was um, some function at the school where um, there was a parent invited, and I got to go. And uh, so we're in line. All these kindergartners are in line, and each of the kindergartners have a mom or a dad with them, and we're in line to in the hallway to go into the cafeteria probably and have donuts or something. Well, in the, in the hallway, right next to us, were the restrooms. And at that point, Matthew looks up at me and he goes, I gotta go, you know, <laughs> like a five-year-old does. And he takes off into the girls' room. 
and he doesn't really even know it. And I look and I see where he goes and I think, uh oh. And without, I mean, two seconds pass by and he comes running back out. And he just grabs onto my waist and is, he's, he's traumatized right about now. And, and that's, and that was bad enough because he probably saw some girls in there. But what was worse was these three kindergarten boys that were in his class saw what he did. And they turn around at him and start laughing. They start making fun of him. Oh, Matthew went in the girls' room, blah, blah, blah. You know how little boys will do. And something in me just got rage. I mean, I just had this red face, and I look at those boys, and I just I looked at each of them, and I just said, Psst, hey. And they looked up at me really wide-eyed, and I said, leave him alone. And he turned tail, and they got a hold of their mama's leg, and, and their moms are going, what, what just happened here? And I just, I, and I grab a hold of my boy, and there's nobody going to make fun of my kid for making a mistake like that. Those boys never turned around again. We didn't see them after that. And this is the picture. This is the picture of the protection, the advocacy, and the power that Paul is painting here, times a million, of what the Father does for you and for me before the accuser. It's like, it's like that matchup between a dad who is just about his kid and all those little, little twerps that are trying to make fun of you. Just shut down right now and turn around and face that way. That's all that he has to say. And they're gone. The trouble is when we as five-year-olds face the other five-year-olds more than we face the father. And we can't get out of our heads what these other little five-year-olds are saying. And we go away from the protection of the father and we try to handle this on our own. This is where the problem comes in. But Paul says, look, from the get-go here, what I've told you in Romans 8, from the very first verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he spent, he comes to that conclusion because of the previous seven chapters. This is what he's been building up to the whole time. And if that's not enough, if that doesn't quite sink in for you, he spends the next 30 verses outlining what this means and how it plays out and how it applies. He's doing his best to wrap this up. And in verse 31, it's almost like he goes into preacher mode, like, how do I wrap this up? What should I say about these things? What can I possibly do to bring this all to some conclusion? What shall we say then in response to this? And then he starts ramping up in a confident set of rhetorical questions. Well, they're not rhetorical, really. They're questions that, that have questions for answers, but they have obvious answers. Simply put, the last, the last verses of Romans 8 ask two big questions. Who could ever get away with successfully accusing or condemning the believer before God? And the second question is this, what could possibly separate us from the love of God? And the simple answers to both those questions are no one and nothing. I'm not trying to be too simplistic here, but I think some of us need to hear, we just need to hear that. In the midst of 
everything else going on in the world, and there's a lot of fear out there, we need to understand and believe by faith that there is no one who will condemn you before God, you being in Christ, and there is no thing that will separate you from His love. Let's just break this down just a tad. Verse 31, what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And this is not to say that Christ had no opponents. This is not to say Christians will not face opposition in the spiritual or the physical realm. But as Paul says elsewhere, our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against these spiritual entities in the heavenly realms that he will list later in verse 36 through 39 when he says that he's convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor any powers. It's interesting what the NIV says here. The ESV is a little different in that it says angels, but also it says rulers and powers. The word used there in the Greek isn't necessarily the word commonly used for demons in the New Testament. The word angels is basically messengers, but then there are these rulers, these principalities, the powers, Paul calls them. Well, who are they? And what are they doing? Well, here and many other places in in the New Testament, Paul gives indication that there are spiritual beings who have power, even dominion, however limited, in the earth, that either work in tandem with the Most High God, or they work in rebellion against Him. We have enemies in the unseen realm, but the God over all gods, the Lord over all lords, what the Old Testament calls God Most High, is for us. It doesn't matter one little bit who is against us, because they'll never compare. And he gives a backing up for what he just said. He who did not spare his own son, this God we're talking about, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The extravagance and generosity of this God of all gods, this this God Most High, the Lord of hosts is his name. He gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And again, I keep, I keep thinking I'm a broken record here. It's not just Jesus saying, I forgive you. Although it's that, it's so much more. It's a gift. It's a gift of his presence through the Holy Spirit. It's a gift of power over sin. It's a gift of forgiveness over the penalty. He took your place and mine, the wrath of God poured out on him on the cross. And he invites us to life. And life abundant, right here. A life of purpose. 
What all things is he talking about God giving us? It's not just all in the hereafter. It's got to be now. Why won't he, in this, in this logical conclusion, will he not graciously, extravagantly, freely give us all things? We're his kids, for crying out loud. Who is he that stands against us? It doesn't matter who does. Who dares, is the next question, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Or another translation says, who dares accuse, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Again, we have an accuser, the evil one himself, but he is nothing compared to the power that God himself has given us. He's given us right standing before him. We're covered in the blood of Christ. We stand justified before him, righteous in his sight. Because of his grace, And we accept that by faith. So we have an accuser who still tries to get through all that. And we also have other other people around us who try to accuse us. For some reason, there are people out there, and some of them even claim Christ. They they, They are Christians themselves, sometimes, who think it's their job to make themselves look better than you because of some moral checklist or some scorecard that they're keeping and they pass judgment on you and they accuse you. But that isn't love and that doesn't reflect the grace given them. So take heart. This is not about them versus you. This is about you handling the accuser through the blood of Christ and the word of your testimony. Remember the difference between conviction and condemnation, between conviction and accusation. There is conviction from the Holy Spirit. If there is a sin that you or I have committed and the Holy Spirit brings our attention to that, then there will be guilt there will be a need for repentance, but that brings us closer to the Father. That heals us and restores us and turns us to the light. But accusation and condemnation, what that does is bring shame, which is way different than guilt. And shame pulls us away from the Father. It isolates us and beats us up and beats us down and to where we're questioning God's love for us at all, or his ability to forgive us at all, and the accuser is running roughshod over you. So who dares accuse us? Well, the accuser does, but it doesn't matter if we don't listen. We listen to the Holy Spirit's voice of comfort, teaching, and conviction when necessary. The last question he asks Verse 34, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who is he that condemns? Well, Satan will try, and he will keep at us. But those who are in Christ are covered by the blood of Christ. 
And they've been justified. They've been found righteous in his sight. So Romans 8 verse 1 already stated this. Who is he that condemns? Nobody that matters. And nobody that will succeed because, verse 1 said, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is he that condemns? Nobody. Because Christ died, because Christ was raised to life, because Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is speaking to the Father on our behalf. Isn't that a comfort? Isn't that a comfort to know that the Holy Spirit resides within us and prays when we can't pray to the, to the Son, who then takes that message to the Father, and all, all four of us, in perfect oneness, speaking together in prayers that we don't even know that we're, that we're praying, but we know we're in communion with the Father. That is a mystery, but that's exactly where we are, being in Christ. And you thought going to church was just about being good and getting your sins forgiven. You have been ushered into an eternal, now, relationship with the Creator who was for you. This is the Gospel. This really is good news. And this is good news you need to latch on to when your heart is afraid. This is good news you need to latch on to when your heart condemns you. Because sometimes we're our own worst enemy. I want to finish this by taking us back to the Psalms. I don't know if you find comfort in the Psalms. I, there's all kinds of good things to be had here. But in Psalm 18... It's a longer one, but I'm only going to read half of it. In my Bible, before the actual verses start, it says that it's a psalm of David. And he sang it to the Lord, the words of this song, when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and the hand of Saul. So if you remember anything about that Old Testament context, you'll, you'll hear what David is saying. But I want you to maybe even close your eyes and imagine with David his imagination of who God is and how God reacts when somebody messes with his kid. Check this out. Psalm 18. If you've got your Bible open, read along with me. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord, who was worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. It's this pretty common psalm-type stuff throughout, but then it gets really interesting how God, how God is described and how David is interacting with, with his troubles. Listen to verse 4. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. And this is how he describes God's reaction. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. 
burning coals blazed out of it. All of a sudden, God is a fire-breathing dragon coming out of a volcano. Okay? He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, and dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. And he shot his arrows and scattered the enemies, great bolts of lightning, and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed. The foundations of the earth were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils. And he reached down from on high, and he took hold of me, and he drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. And he brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I don't know if you have this kind of picture of the God of heaven hearing your cry for help and parting the heavens, flying down at your rescue. I don't know if you have a picture of God answering your prayers like that, but you should. You can. It may not be that dramatic. It may not be that immediate. But you have a Father who knows your fears. You have a God who is powerful enough to address your need. And at perhaps no other time in your life have you needed this voice, this power, right now, more than you, have, more than you, more than you ever have. Perhaps you need it more now than you ever have. Who dares accuse? Who dares condemn? Who will bring a charge against God's chosen? Nobody that matters. You're in Christ. You are His. And He will scatter your enemies, whatever they be, whether they be shame, condemnation, fear, anxiety, sin. He will scatter them before Him. With the breath of His nostrils, He will rescue you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, let your word go out in power and let it land where it needs to and let it minister to those who need to hear it. We're a nation, even a world, gripped in fear. We're gripped by people who want us to be afraid on so many levels. We have an unseen enemy that we're trying to do battle against. And so many people have so many different ways of addressing this. And it's hugely confusing and frightening. And the world is on fire in so many other ways besides this virus. But your people have been through plague before. They have been through torment before, they have been through torture before, they have been in exile before, and they will be again. Help us to plant our feet on the solid ground that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and not be moved. 
in his name. Amen.